Can I just say it is good to be home? (laughs) Beginning today, Orthodox and Hasidic Jews around the world begin to celebrate what we know as the Feast of Pentecost. And the Feast of Pentecost, of course, reminds us of the giving of the law in the book of Exodus. It also reminds us of the giving of the Holy Spirit in the second chapter of Acts. Something that you may not know because I just recently discovered it myself. Jews around the world have always known that the Feast of Pentecost is also the season of the open heaven. It's an agricultural feast and they celebrate it as Feast of the Open Heaven because the heavens would open and the much needed rain would come down and water the crops. It's celebrated as the Feast of the Open Heaven in Exodus because God came down and gave the law to Moses. And the people that were not a people became a people. And the government of God was in their midst. And in the second chapter of Acts, God opened the heavens one more time and came down in the person of the Holy Spirit and birthed the New Testament church. I know that there are many people throughout time and history who have been praying, God, rend the heavens and come down. Oh, God, that you would open the heavens. There is nothing wrong with that prayer, but I tell you this, the heavens have been open. They've been open for a very long time, and it is up to you and to I, as born-again Christians, as men and women who know Jesus, to begin to live under that open heaven. Now, that open heaven does not mean just financial blessings because I think many times we have misinterpreted the blessings of God with dollar signs. The blessing of God comes in many ways. And one of the blessings that I am passionate about in this moment for the church of Jesus Christ is the blessing of conviction. That the church would once again be convicted before a holy God and be committed to walk in a way of righteousness before the Lord. That we would be convicted of those things which God does not care for in our lives. Those elements that he says no to. That we would be convicted for his government in our lives. And it wouldn't be just Jesus is my savior. But we would boldly declare Jesus is the Lord of my life. And he is sovereign in everything that I do and every step that I take. It is the season of the open heaven. And may the Father show us and reveal himself to us and what he's raining down his spirit in this moment in time, whether it's conviction or healing or salvation or deliverance, those things are ours in Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you. Holy Spirit of the living God, you are welcome in this place. We have already asked you to come, but once again, we say, Holy Spirit, manifest yourself in our midst. You are free in this place to do as you will. For where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And we ask you tonight, precious Spirit of God, would you convict our heart of those things which are not pleasing and honoring to the Father? Would you put within us a desire for the things that are eternal and loose the grip that time has on us. That, Father, we would be passionate about your Son and about the things of your kingdom and that we would be lovers of your Son, lovers of your Word. Open our ears to hear what you would speak to us tonight by your Spirit. Let us leave this place transformed. For it is in the excellent name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. 
it is perfectly fine for you to say amen and to be engaged with me. And it's also perfectly fine just to sit there and soak it up. So be free tonight. Tonight and for the next three nights, uh, three Wednesday nights, we're going to be looking at the book of Philippians. There is no way in just three Wednesday nights that I can give you all the truth and all the depth of understanding that's available in the book of Philippians. So this is going to be just a very cursory introduction to the book. Philippians is one of those little books in the New Testament that, of course, I've read. I can quote back to you the more popular scriptures that you find in the book of Philippians. But I have to be honest with you, until about six months ago, I had not seriously considered the book of Philippians. I had not looked at it with any sort of depth. And so what I'll share with you tonight are just some truths that God has taken and and just made alive in my heart and life. The book of Philippians was written to a people that Paul referred to as friends. This is maybe the only friendship letter that Paul wrote. And the reason that we designate it as a friendship letter is because Paul doesn't say anything like, like, I, Paul, an apostle with the authority of God himself. No, Paul in this letter says, I, Paul, a servant of Christ, a servant to you. I come to you, you are my friends, and I long for you, and you are my beloved. He uses intimate friendship language with the Philippians. Now, Paul's relationship with the Philippians really goes back all the way to Acts chapter 16, his second missionary journey. Paul and Silas are going to preach the gospel And um, in a minute, I'm going to define gospel for you. But they're going to preach the gospel, and every time they start to go somewhere, the Spirit restrains them and says, don't go there. Or even Paul uses the words in um, Acts chapter 16, the Spirit forbade us, constrained us. We weren't allowed to go. And so it it didn't matter what direction Paul turned in, the Spirit held him back. Have you ever had the Holy Spirit hold you back? It looked like a good direction. It sounded good. It looked good on paper. The board voted yes on it. Everyone you shared the vision with said, that's great, go for it. But then when you actually start to go in that direction, you get that check from the Holy Spirit that says, don't go there. Now, how many of you have pushed through that check and went anyways? Yeah, we've got some testimonies about that. Paul was much wiser and did not, when the, when the Holy Spirit said, don't go, he didn't go, but he waited on the Lord. And one night, as he was waiting on the Lord, he dreamed that someone from Macedonia was saying, come over here, come over here. So the next day, when Paul got up, he knew where he was supposed to go. So he and Silas headed toward Macedonia. And when they got to Macedonia, one of the first people that they encountered, I mean, look at this. This is their their evangelism tactic. The first person that they saw, they shared Jesus with. And it was a woman, Lydia, a seller of fine purple. And when they shared Christ with her, her heart was open and prepared to receive. And she brought them into her household. And many people began to hear the gospel. And it began to grow from there. And every day, Paul and Silas would go out into the marketplace and they would preach the gospel, whether it was one-on-one or to a large crowd. I think Paul was so passionate for the things of God's kingdom that he would have preached to a wall if there was no one else there, that God would stir such passion within our hearts again. There was a woman that followed Paul day after day. And this woman would say, 
Oh, behold the man of God. Ah, behold the man who has the word of the Lord. And she would begin to make declarations like that. This went on for several days. And finally, Paul, with a spirit of discernment, turns to her and rebukes the familiar spirit through which she is operating. And that moment, the woman was delivered. Now, you would think that the entire town would go, Oh, look what a powerful, mighty God. This Paul and Silas preach, look what an awesome God this God of Christianity is. You would think that they would have celebrated and it would have filled the auditoriums. But no, this woman was a medium or what we might relate to in our modern day vernacular. She was a psychic and she made a lot of money for the people who used her. She was spiritual, but she was spiritual without Jesus. Now let me take a little sidebar here. My husband is, is um, one of uh, three deans at a medical school in South Carolina, and we have lots of students come into our home, and I'm able to spend time with them, just talking with them, finding out who they are and what they believe. And what I am discovering, and this is just based on this small circle of about 200 people, is that the majority of people that I come across are spiritual, consider themselves spiritual meaning that they are open to spiritual things, but not Christian. They are open to spiritual things, but they want nothing to do with Jesus. That is a very dangerous place for any culture to be. Because there is spirituality without Jesus, but it is not a spirituality that you want. And it is certainly not a spirituality that you want to take with you when you step out of time and into eternity. So this woman is spiritual, and she's making money for people. But she's spiritual without the government of God on her life. And when Paul rebukes the demon that's empowering her, these people lose their cash cow, so to speak. And when they lose their cash flow, because this woman's gift is gone, because the gift was not a gift at all. It was a demonic presence in her life. When this is gone from her life, they seek Paul and Silas. They arrest them. They beat them. And they put them in prison. Now, I don't know about you, but in my mind, I'm going, that's, that's crazy. You're not supposed to be arrested for setting people free in the name of the Lord. You're not supposed to get lashes because you've done what, what's right. People who get lashes are people who've broken the law and done what's wrong. But not in this case. I think every day we are coming closer to a time that those men and women, young men and young women, who do what is right and declare the true gospel of Jesus Christ, you may very well find yourself under scrutiny by a government and even in prison. And we are coming closer and closer to that every day, even to the point that people, when asked for their opinion, are afraid to really share what they believe because they know that they are going to become the object of, various, of the anger of various groups that disagree with them. So the gospel of Jesus Christ Today, just like in Macedonia, hundreds of years ago, the gospel is under attack. Now, Paul and Silas are amazing. Read, read chapter 16 of the book of Acts. When they're arrested and put into prison, you don't hear this, Oh, Paul, what did we do wrong? And you didn't hear Paul say, Oh, I just want to die. 
You didn't hear them have this incredible pity party. You didn't hear them say, where is God now? Is everything that we've ever believed just a lie? And I, I say this jokingly, but we've said it. And if we haven't said it, we've thought it. And we haven't even been beaten and in a prison. That's just because we missed dinner or a bill didn't get paid. That's just because some guy didn't give you the attention that you thought you wanted from him. If we weary with the footman, whatever will we do when the horses come out? Paul and Silas, at the midnight hour, I think they're still up at midnight because they're in so much pain because of the stripes on their back that they cannot sleep. But they're not sitting there or standing there bemoaning their stripes or bemoaning their shackles. They are at the midnight hour singing praises to the Lord. Now let me back up and say this as well. And if you're going to be here Sunday morning, I'm going to develop this much more in depth Sunday morning. Worship is not cheap. Worship is not convenient. 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 24, David says, I will not offer to my God that which has cost me nothing. Worship by its very nature demands a sacrificial position. Worship requires that we give something of ourselves to a holy God. Worship is not about convenience. Well, I'm just not going to church this Sunday because it's raining. I, I just can't make it to that service because, well, it's just too hot. And, and you guys know the litany of excuses. Worship is costly and it is not convenient. But for the man or the woman that loves Jesus Christ, there is nothing else you want to do. And everything that you do is an act of worship. I love my husband. I hate to put away groceries. I don't mind buying groceries. I don't mind cooking. I don't even mind washing dishes. I hate putting away groceries. It is one of those tasks that I, it's on my, I hate putting away groceries. If I could hire someone to come put my groceries away for me, I would. But you want to know something? I put away my groceries every time I go buy them, not because I like it. I put my groceries away because I love my husband and I want him to come home to an organized place where he feels that he can rest and relax. When you love someone, even those unseemly tasks become labors of love. Who loves changing a diaper? I, I, I don't know. Oh, I get to change a diaper. I, I don't hear that too often. But you change that diaper because it's an act of love. We worship not because it's doing something for us. We worship not because it's easy. We worship not because there's, a, there's something in it that's, that's drawing us. We worship because we love the object of our affection, who is Jesus Christ. And anything less than that is something other than worship. So Paul and Silas are singing praises to the Lord in the midnight hour. This is a praise of this is a sacrifice of praise because it's costing them something. They're not praising because everything went their way. They're not worshiping because they're rock stars. They're not worshiping God because they landed some big promotional deal. They're worshiping God because they love him and they know in whom they have believed and they are persuaded that he is able to keep those things that they commit to him. And as they're worshiping the Lord, 
an earthquake begins to take place. And as the earthquake begins to take place, their shackles fall off. And the jail cell door opens wide. And the jailer steps in with a sword and he is about to end his life. And Paul says, no, don't do that. We are all here. And the man basically says, gets up and says, what must I do to be saved? What? I mean, these guys haven't given him four spiritual laws and told him some cute prayer. No, the Spirit of God has invaded that place and the man is convicted that he is a sinful man in the presence of a holy God and he wants to be changed and he cannot change himself. So Paul and Silas go home with this man, share Christ with him, and he and his entire household say yes to Jesus. That's how the church at Philippi got started. How awesome is that? Now, before I jump into the book of Philippians, because the book of Philippians centers on two things, and they're really inseparable. Jesus and the gospel are at the heart of this book. I mean, actually, if you want to break it down, Jesus and the gospel, which are inseparable, because without Jesus, there is no gospel. Jesus is at the heart of everything that the Father does. We sing that song by Israel Houghton, Jesus be the center of it all. He is the center of it all. And it is a matter of us coming under his government, realizing that he is the center of it all. Have any of you ever been bothered when someone says, oh, Jesus has the first place in my life and my family comes second and my work comes third? I have to say no to that because until Jesus consumes everything in your life, He's not in his rightful place. Because when Jesus is everything, the beginning and the end, and everything in the middle, then everything that needs to fall into place falls into place. But we've been trying to say, okay, here's, my, here's Jesus up here, and i got to take care of Jesus stuff on Sundays, and maybe Wednesday nights, and, and here's the family, and I've got to take care of family stuff two hours on Monday, three hours on Tuesday. And you set it out and pigeonhole it. That's not what it's about. Jesus is the center of it all. He is the center of my life. And he's everything on the edges and in between as well. And church, we must come to that place. Because until he is the beginning and the ending and everything in the middle, something will always be missing in our lives. So the gospel and Jesus are the center, especially of the book of Philippians. Now, when Paul speaks of the gospel, you also cannot se separate the gospel of Jesus Christ from the cross of Jesus Christ, which reminds us of his sacrifice at Calvary. Now, I am taking time to tell you what the gospel is because in the last 20 years, we've presented the gospel simply as this, Jesus loves you and he has a plan for your life. And that's the gospel. Now, is that true? Of course it's true. But that's not the whole gospel. Jesus loves you. He loves you so much that even though you are in a wrecked, broken, sinful condition, that while you were yet a sinner, he loved you so much, he stepped out of eternity into time, took on flesh, died on a cross for my sin so that I could be made righteous before the Father. 
And he rose from the dead, and he's seated now at the right hand of the Father, forever making intercession for me. And he's coming back again. That's also a part of the gospel. He's coming back again. And because he's coming back again, it behooves us to have a right relationship with him because when he comes back again, the last destination is heaven or the other place. A part of the gospel is speaking the truth that there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. We have been so afraid and so reticent to talk about eternal damnation that we have an entire generation of Christian kids, quote-unquote, who do not even know if there's a real devil and if there's a hell. But a part of the true gospel, the whole gospel, is that Jesus came to save us because we were sinners, because there is a heaven to gain and there is a hell to shun. And that's a part of the power of the gospel knowing that we have a choice now to receive him or to reject him because in eternity we will have no choice. Oh, you guys are so quiet. (laughs) Back in the first part of May, I visited a church in another state, and they sang a song, and the song really bothered me. The name of the song is A Scandal of Grace. Love the title because grace really is scandalous. That God would love us and that deity would become humanity so that I could become a daughter of the Most High God. That whole concept really is scandalous to the natural mind. There's a line in the song that says, He broke my fall. Now, I understood in the context of that song that it meant he broke the power of the fall off of my life because of what he did at Calvary. And that is absolutely the truth. Around the same time I was thinking about this song, I was watching the evening news. And on the news, they were doing this special on this woman who had jumped almost 40 feet out of a burning apartment, having wrapped herself around her 18-month-old baby and without even a second thought, flung herself from this burning apartment to save her baby. And as I'm listening to this report and I'm processing everything that they're saying, they said, and the baby survived without a scratch because his mother broke his fall. And that concept of he broke my fall and the concept of salvation was birthed brand new all over in me again. Think about this. This is the gospel in kind of metaphorical terms. We're in a building and it's on fire. We set the fire with our actions and our choices. But the building is on fire and there is no way out. We are going to burn to death in that building. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but that building's on fire and eventually it's going to come crashing down around us and it's going to destroy us. In a moment of desperation, I realize I'm in a a burning building and there's no way out. And I cry out to God, Jesus, save me. I am in a burning building and I have no way out. And the Son of God comes and wraps himself around me and hurls us out of the building and he breaks my fall with his own body so that I can walk away free. 
That's what salvation is all about. He breaks our fall. Because we say yes to him and allow him to transform our lives. He stands between us and all that the enemy would want to do and accomplish in our lives. Because of what he has done, he stands between me and what I deserve. And he stands between you and what you deserve as well. The gospel is definitely Jesus loves you and he has a plan for your life. But that's just the top of it. The truth is we are sinners lost, broken, irreparable. There is no hope for us and we are undone because of choices and decisions and just by the very fact that we were born into this sin nature. And there's no hope for us. But here comes the grace of God. It's as though we wake up and we realize that we are sinners in need of a Savior. I don't know how a person can get saved if they do not first recognize that they are a sinner. How is it that we preach a grace and a gracious God, but we do not also help people to realize that without Christ, they are sinners in need of a Savior? I have probably been listening to far too much Leonard Ravenhill and R.A. Torrey. I've probably been listening to too much Martin Lloyd-Jones. But the truth of the matter is this. Without recognizing our despicable state and our need for a Savior, why would we even want one? Have you ever wondered how it is that so many people are in the church but their lives are never transformed? How is it that so many people can talk about knowing Jesus, but somehow in the knowing Jesus and the way they live their lives, there's this huge disconnect? Does it bother you? It bothers me. It bothers me that people by the millions can say that they are evangelical Christians, but there is no proof in the way that they live their lives. It bothers me. That millions of people can crowd into altars and say a prayer and go through some recitation and walk away as filthy as they were when they came because there's been no transformation in their lives. Paul says in the book of Corinthians, he says, I do not come to you with enticing words and, and eloquent speech. I come to you in power, dunamis, the power of the Holy Spirit, and with demonstration. I had always believed that that demonstration was I come raising the dead and healing the sick and multiplying bread and fish. I always thought that. One day I actually studied the word. The demonstration is a legal term. I come to you with irrefutable proof. What was Paul's irrefutable proof? I once was a murderer and a hater of Christ. But Jesus did something in my life and I am no longer the same. That's the irrefutable proof. If you were to be put on the witness stand and someone was trying to prove that you were a Christian, is there enough evidence to book you? Is there enough evidence? This is not to condemn you or to make you feel bad. This is a wake-up cry. We live under an open heaven, and a part of living under that open heaven is that God wants to do a transforming work in our lives. Those of us who lie, he wants to transform us to where we are men and women of truth. Those of us who steal, he wants to transform us to where we are men and women of integrity. Those of us who are bound by addictions, we become men and women who are free from those things that once 
held us and bound us. That's the gospel. Because I'm going to take you in just a moment and show you who Paul identifies as enemies of the gospel. And I want you to know what the gospel is so that when I talk about an enemy of the gospel, you know what I'm referring to. Not some weak, watered-down presentation. The gospel is Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Sovereign God is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the euangelion, the good news, the gospel. And this is the evidence of that. The blind can see. you got to know that you're blind before you can get sight. And he's not just talking about physical blindness. People who couldn't see the things of God's kingdom before, now they can see and they're alive and they're awake to the things of God's spirit. Hearing to the deaf. People who could not hear can now hear the voice of the Spirit. My sheep hear my voice, and they will not follow another. To the poor, the gospel is preached because the gospel offers a wealth that is beyond anything that we can imagine. Not worldly wealth, but a wealth of rightness and relationship with God, a wealth of knowing Him. I was privileged Monday night to have dinner with a family. They have five adult children, one's married, and they have their first grandchild. As I sat there to have dinner with them, all five adult kids were home. And the son-in-law and the grandchild. They liked each other. They were talking about Jesus and about what God had done in their lives that week. They were talking about how God was dealing with them through his word. They prayed for each other and with each other. I honestly have not very often seen such demonstrations in a family. And I left thinking that is the wealthiest family I have ever seen. I have heard many a materially wealthy family say, I would give every dollar that I have if my children would just come home. If my children were just in a right relationship with Jesus. But I have never heard a parent whose children were walking right before the Lord and did like them and have a good relationship with them say, I'd trade that if I could have some money. I think in our culture we have put emphasis on the wrong thing. Material wealth is not an indication of anything. And thank God for those who have it. Hallelujah. God blesses us with finances so we can keep the lights on and the air going and the building in good repair. But when it all comes down to this, the greatest wealth is the wealth that we find in knowing Jesus and having a right, ongoing relationship with Him. Nothing else, nothing else compares with that. All other things pale when placed beside it. The blessing that God has for us is the blessing of his gospel. That if we are in bondage, we can be free. If we are broken, we can be healed. If we are blind, we can see. If we're deaf, we can hear. If we are lame, we can walk again. That's the blessing of the Lord. That's the truth of the gospel. And when we place our faith and trust in Jesus and that transforming work takes place in our lives and we become born again sons and daughters of God, the heaven is opened and those things are ours by inheritance. Have you ever wondered where all the power went in the church? 
We read the second chapter of Acts. We read Acts chapter 16. We hear testimonies from lowly about the great and mighty things that God's doing. But then sometimes we look around in our own lives and we go, where is the power? I really believe that the power of God is directly connected to our commitment to him and the way that we walk before him. Now, God is powerful no matter what because he's God. But his flow of power in our lives, in and around us, is dependent on our relationship with him. So, so many times. Now, there are exceptions, and I know that. But I think at large, we've been looking for the power of God without first seeking the face of God and having a right relationship with him. Now, I am getting to the book of Philippians, I promise. As I've already stated, this is probably the only friendship letter that Paul wrote in all the New Testament. There are three types of friendship. And Paul's writing to the Philippians. These are people that he is intimate with. He loves these people. They have a good relationship with each other. There are three types of friendship in the ancient world as well as in the modern world. There is true friendship. A true friendship is built on a common core of beliefs and a righteous lifestyle. It's based on goodwill and loyalty. Listen to that. Do you hear what I'm saying? You can't be true friends with someone if you don't share a common core belief system. You can have acquaintances with them, but they should not be your best friend. Your closest, most intimate friends should be only those who share your faith and understand your relationship with Jesus Christ. I was talking with a youth group in Spartanburg, and they were, I was asking them, what is important to you? And they said, relationships. And I said, great, there is no better way to form relationships than around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they stop you, oh, that's not what we mean. The gospel gets in the way of friendships. When, when you start bringing Jesus and scripture into the mix, well, then we can't, we can't be friends with the people that don't agree with us. And, and that's just, you know, we want to be, be open to all people. And we want to be tolerant of all people. And we want all people to be able to come in and we can be friends with everybody. And I'm like, you can be acquaintances with them, but true friendship has as its center the common core belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And anything outside of that, they can be an acquaintance, but not a true friend. So true friendship. Those of you who have children, talk to your children about that. That true friendship is only with those men and women who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The other kind of friendship is a friendship that's built around pleasure. People who enjoy doing the same thing. They, have a, uh, they do not have a common core of beliefs. I play Scrabble, and recently I've joined a statewide uh, Scrabble tournament group. And I am acquainted with a number of those people. And we enjoy Scrabble together. And we enjoy competing in Scrabble together. But they are not my close friends. Because we do not share a common core of beliefs. We share Scrabble. And as soon as the game is over, so is the relationship. Think about that. 
any relationship that's built around pleasure because you have something that you both like to do or for the moment you both are bringing, doing something that's mutually beneficial or pleasant to the other person, as soon as that is over, so is the relationship. How many people have built a marriage on that and then wondered what went wrong? Because as soon as the pleasure is over, so is the relationship. The third type of friendship is a friendship that's built on need. The person is being friended because they have something that the other person needs or desires. And again, we all do this. I, I was friends with the people at the bank when I needed to bring and get a mortgage on, on a house. But as soon as that situation was over, I don't even remember their names. We, have, we do. We, 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 um, we form temporary bonds with people because we have something they need or they have something we need. But as soon as that time is over, so is the relationship. The only friendship that endures the test of time is that friendship that's built on the core of Jesus Christ and a common belief. In the book of Philippians, this is how Paul addresses the, the people of Philippians. Those to whom he wishes goodwill. He wants them to prosper even more than he wants to prosper himself. He wants things to be good and to go well for them, even more than for himself. When Paul writes this letter, he is in a Roman prison. He is writing to them from prison, and he doesn't know if he will ever get out or not. And he's writing to them, and the possibility that this is the last letter he will ever write is very much a reality for him. Those to whom he wishes goodwill, they are partners in the gospel. Paul never saw himself as being a one-man act. He understood that one, one planted, another watered, but that it was God who gave the increase. I would that the church would get over its rock star syndrome and realize that it's not a pulpit or a television personality. It's Jesus. Thank God for dynamic personalities, but as soon as that personality goes home to be with Jesus or goes on to something else, where will you be? How many people have built their entire faith around one person and then when that one person disappoints or falls or doesn't pan out to be everything that they said they were, their faith goes. Our faith is built on simply this, Jesus Christ. My faith is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Our faith is not built on dynamic personalities and evangelical rock stars even if, if there even really is such a thing. Our faith is built on the person of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I am a partner with you in the gospel. We are in this together. He didn't elevate himself above these people. He saw them working together, co-laborers in the field of God, accomplishing the will and the plan of God, mutually suffering for the sake of the gospel. Do you know that suffering for the gospel is not unusual? Suffering for the sake of the gospel is the norm. Preaching the gospel and not suffering any consequences for it is abnormal. You almost know, I'm going to be really bold, you know, I'm going to take the almost out of there, you know that you're doing it right when things begin to fall apart all around you. You know you're doing it right when things begin to go wrong. 
You know that you're doing it right when somebody's upset about it. You know that you're doing it right when you have railing accusations brought against you that have no merit. Mutual suffering for the sake of the gospel. He addresses the Philippians as those for whom he has deep affection, the way that a parent would feel for a child, and it reminds them that they are like-minded. To have friends, by its very implication, means that you also have enemies. And just as surely as Paul addressed the Philippians as his friends in this book, he identified his enemies. And he didn't take it personal. He didn't say, these are my personal enemies. Nowhere in the book will you find Paul talking about his personal enemies. He talks about people who are enemies of the gospel, people who are, who are contrary to the cross of Christ. For Paul, an enemy is not someone who didn't like him. For Paul, an enemy is a person who was in some way compromising or, or misrepresenting the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's enough to make your head spin. We define enemies as people we don't like. They took money from me. They lied. They didn't do this or they didn't do that or they didn't respond when I needed them to respond. Get over yourself. And it comes right back at me. We need to get over ourselves because the real enemies are not those people that are like buzzing little mosquitoes around our head. The real enemies are those individuals who are being controlled by demonic forces and they find themselves as enemies to the cross of Jesus Christ and they're damaging the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those are the enemies and those are the ones that we need to address. Before I even begin looking at these people that Paul identifies, let me point something out to you. This blew me away. Paul's in prison because the Roman government and the Jews have put him there. You would think that he would identify the Romans and the Jews as his enemies, but he does not. He does not identify the government as his enemy. He does not identify the entertainment industry as his enemy. He does not identify secular universities and philosophies as his enemies. And trust me, even in Paul's day, all those things existed. And if he lived today, he would not have identified social media as the enemy. For Paul, the enemies were those men and women who declared Jesus with their mouths and lived something else with their lives. Ouch. Let's look at this. Some indeed preach Christ. I'm in chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, and verses 27 through 28. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here in the prison for the defense of the gospel. And remember what gospel is. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and are not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. The second place 
in Philippians where Paul identifies the enemies of the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 21, for they all seek their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. And the third place, chapter 3, verse 2, and in 17 through 19, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. They're in this destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. That's stunning. The first group that he references, he says they preach out of envy. That means that they have displeasure and they feel displeasure whenever they learn that something good has happened to someone else, especially when that someone else is a follower of Jesus Christ. They envy. They cannot rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep because they are self-centered in that if it's not their good news, it's no one's good news. If it's not their blessing, then no one gets a blessing. Can I let you in on a secret? It's really not a secret. God will bless the people around you until you can rejoice with them. God will bless people that you don't like until you can rejoice with them. God will bless people that you don't think deserves it until you can rejoice with them. I think we hinder the blessings of God on our own lives because we envy it in the lives of other people. It is time for us to grow up and to realize that the gospel is not about us. The kingdom of God does not circle around us. We are not the center of God's existence. He is the center of all that is. And he ought to be the center of our lives, our end and our beginning. Paul says they're people of rivalry. They're arguing and debating for the sake of proving themselves right. They don't even have to believe what they're saying. They'll just argue it until they wear the opponent down just to prove that they're right. They want to argue for the argument's sake. They're all about pointing out the flaws and the faults of someone else. Can I tell you that it is easy to stand in the shadows when you're shining the spotlight on someone else? There has been a rash of individuals who call themselves evangelical Christians, and their sole goal is to defame and take down everything Pentecostal and charismatic. And they spend all of their time and all of their energy proving that Pentecostals and charismatics are heretics. Are there heretics in Pentecostal charismatic? Oh, sure. There's heretics everywhere. But the point is this. Why are we arguing with each other when there is a world lost and on its way to hell? Why are we arguing over silly, I'm not going to call it silly, why are we arguing over things when we ought to be about sharing Christ with a world that does not know him? Selfish ambition it means party making. Seeking to win followers so as to win something or someone. It's almost like a contest. I bet I can grow a bigger church than you. 
If you don't think this is a problem, look at the church growth conferences. And even more, I challenge you to go to one because what they're saying you have to do to grow a quote-unquote big church is a violation of the very word of God. Telling you to water down and to break down the truth of the gospel. Don't talk about the cross. Don't mention the blood. And please don't mention the word hell. Tell people about their destiny. Tell people about God's plan for their life. Tell people that they are good and God wants them to be better. Tell them about how to succeed. Let me tell you this, until Jesus is first in our life, until we realize that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that plan is worthless. Who cares about our self-esteem and our ego if we're on our way to hell? We have sacrificed the gospel of Jesus Christ to build up someone's sense of self. Our sense of self doesn't need to be built down. It needs to be destroyed at the cross of Calvary so that it's no longer me who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. Some of you are thinking, wow, I've never heard anything like this before. That's because we have gotten so far away from the truth that the truth that was standard 50 years ago is a shocking revelation to us now. Enemies of the cross. They're people who cause distress. The Greek word is thelipsis, and it means pressing or squeezing. It's often uh, translated as tribulation. The imagery I get is a, a tube of toothpaste, and it's just being squeezed until everything in it comes out. Have you ever felt squeezed? Can I ask you this, and it's a rhetorical question. What comes out of you when you're squeezed? Because until it's Jesus that comes out of you. When Paul and Silas were being squeezed in that Macedonian prison, what came out of them? At the midnight hour, they were praising God. What comes out of you when life puts the squeeze on you? What comes out of you when people and institutions put the squeeze on you? I don't like tribulation and I don't like being squeezed and I would vote no on it every time. But I am not a part of a democracy. I am a part of theocracy and Jesus is king. And sometimes he orders it for our lives. Not to destroy us, but to make us everything that he desires for us to be for his honor and for his glory. Paul says they're causing distress. I'm being squeezed because of the things that are happening. These people are frightening the Christians. This is intimidation and bullying. This reminds me of Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. Send me a man out here. Who is this God of Israel? His armies run when I speak. Send me a man, and I'll bring him down and beat him to the birds. And the entire army of Israel shrunk back with intimidation. Can I tell you that there are intimidating forces out there that are telling us that if we preach the gospel, we'll be arrested? That there are intimidating forces, bullying forces out there, not from without, but even from within, that if we preach the truth, we'll lose our congregation. That if we preach the truth, the finances are going to slow down. That if we preach the truth, it's all going to fall apart and people are not going to understand that if we preach the truth and we are bullied so many times into shrinking back like Saul and his army and it's going to take David's and I would that God raise up men and women that have this attitude. It's going to take a David going out there saying, who are you, you uncircumcised Philistine before the armies of the living God? 
You've heard me share this before. David is the only one out there that can call the giant an uncircumcised Philistine because everybody out there had entered into agreement with him and had circumcised him in their hearts. And you cannot defeat that which you are in agreement with. You cannot defeat that which you are in agreement with. David went out there and he said, you have a spear and a sword and a javelin, but I have the name of the living God and you are coming down. I would that we would have such boldness stir up within us that we would stop being frightened and intimidated by those people who are haters of the gospel, by those individuals who are enemies to the cross of Jesus Christ. Opponents, those individuals who set themselves in opposition to the gospel. Paul says that these enemies of the gospel are dogs. Dogs throughout scripture are not those beautiful fur babies that we are all so in love with, but dogs in the gospel are often metaphorical uses for people who have no moral character. They have no sense of right and wrong. They are immoral. They eat their own vomit. They go from place to place and they do not care what they eat where they go, and who they're with. Dogs, evildoers, those whose bad character makes them useless. I know that this is hard, but if you have a man or a woman who say that they know Jesus, that they are a Jesus follower, and yet their morality is so bad that there is no difference between them and the common sinner, they are useless for the gospel. That, that's hard to say. And I have several theological questions about that, but people who are evildoers, their bad character makes them useless for the kingdom of God. And Paul addresses the false circumcision, mutilators, those who teach that physical circumcision is required for salvation. Let me bring this into our 21st century. Anyone who teaches that Jesus plus anything is the gospel is wrong. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. It's not Jesus plus this. It's not Jesus minus that. It is Christ and Christ alone. He is the beginning and the ending and everything in the middle. And anyone who wants to add to that or take away from that makes themselves an enemy to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Enemies of the cross are those who have set themselves against the power and the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. There is only one way to the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ the Son. And our salvation was purchased for us on a cross with the shed blood of the Son of God. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. How dare we be ashamed of the very thing that buys our salvation? How dare we be ashamed of the very thing that Paul says, it's the cross of Jesus Christ, the power of God. How dare we leave these things out of our lives and our testimony. Any gospel that doesn't include the crucified, resurrected Christ is something other than the gospel. Those individuals who are using the gospel to advance their own kingdom, they were using the gospel for selfish gain. The gospel to them wasn't about seeing men and women come into the kingdom of God. The gospel to them was a way to make money and build big buildings and buy big houses and to have importance and titles. 
There are many motivational speakers in churches across our country today. But there's a difference between a motivational speaker and a preacher of the gospel. And it's time that we discern between the two. I have been working for quite some time on what I call a treatise against cultural Christianity. And actually, there is no such thing as cultural Christianity, but I use that phrase because it's people in culture who think that they're Christians because they've gone to church and not because they've had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. The difference between authentic Christianity and cultural Christianity at the heart is this. Cultural Christianity will always have me at its center. A better way to be a better you. A new and improved way to be more successful. How to be better at this and how to be better at that. How to get the job that you want. How to get the amount of pay that you want. It's all about you. The authentic gospel is about Jesus and him crucified. The authentic gospel is about a holy God who loved a sinful me so much that he sent his own son to break my fall so that I could be called a daughter of the Most High God. Enemies of the gospel, we don't have to look to Hollywood. We don't have to look to Washington, D.C. We don't have to look at the ivory towers of secular universities and secular philosophers. We have to look in the mirror and ask the Holy Spirit of God to show us if we are making ourselves opponents to the cross of Jesus Christ. You know that we live in serious days. Things are not going to get any easier. But where sin does abound, grace does much more abound. God is shaking all of us. I don't know about you, but there is a hunger inside of me that grows almost on an hourly basis, a hunger for God to come and shake me, a hunger for God to convict me and give me a desire for his holiness that I've never had before, a hunger that will cause me to be dissatisfied with all the material gains of this world and long for him and his presence more than anything else. It's hit and miss for me right now. But I long to be in that place. And I'm at least aware of the places where I'm not there. And I can pray and constantly be submitting those things in my life to him. I ask you tonight, are you an opponent to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or are you a friend? If there are places in your life where the Holy Spirit's convicting you, that you've been an opponent or an enemy to the things of God. There's an easy cure for that. Easy for us, but it cost him his son. That cure is this. Jesus, here I am. I am broken, and I need for you to make me whole. I am wrong, and I need for you to make me right before you. Father, any area of our life where we have opposed you, set ourselves as enemies of the cross of Jesus, forgive us. We ask you to break our hearts with the things that break your heart and cause our hearts to long for the things that please you. More than anything, my Father, 
We want Jesus to be glorified in everything about us. And we want to be able to say, not just with our mouths, but with our lives, it's no longer I that lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In the excellent name of Jesus, amen. Bless you guys.